Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. I'm Mike and Davina. And this week, I'm really excited because I've got an amazing guest. I'm talking with three-time Grammy Award-winning engineer David Bottrell. If you're not familiar with David, he's worked on a bunch of my favorite albums. He has worked with everybody from Tool, Muse, Silverchair, Smashing Pumpkins, Rush, Stone Sour, Peter Gabriel, and a whole bunch more. And we have a really fun conversation. He talks about the art of balancing the artist's vision for a song versus giving the label people what they want. We also get into some detail about mixing in subgroups, building mix templates to maximize your creativity and speed, carving space in the low end to get more clarity, mixing with subwoofers, the downside to using reverb, and knowing also when to step away from a mix and restart later with a fresh mindset. It was a pleasure talking with him, and I know you're going to find a lot of value in the things that he said. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump right into it. So David, thank you for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, Mike. So for people who might not be familiar with your story, your background, can you give me a little bit of insight on how you got started, how you became a mixer, what your journey was? Well, I started back in 1982-83 at Grant Avenue Studios in Hamilton. Um, I was... uh, a young college student, not sure what I wanted to do with life, and I found my way into the studio and fell in love with Studio Life. And uh, I had a couple great mentors in Bob and Dan Lanois at the time who owned that studio, and they taught me how to uh, be invisible and to listen and to uh, sort of uh, be quiet until I had something strong to say and then come forward and say it and then get out of the way. Uh, I think uh, they were they were very, very good at, at really molding me in, in my early days as to the studio etiquette, of course, and, you know, how, how creative processes happen in the studio. What got you into mixing in the production side in the first place? Were you a musician or... Yeah, I was a I was a really bad guitar player and you know, played with some friends in garages and things like that. But I always knew I I wanted to do something with music. I just didn't know what that would be. Uh, I had no idea really what recording and mixing was all about until I got into the studio. And then when I discovered it, I thought, yeah, I, I want to do that. So I wanted to learn every aspect of it. I wanted to learn the recording and the production and the writing and the mixing and sort of uh, the full package. I, I I like to do I like to do all kinds of different things and not keep myself just doing one thing it keeps me interested so i'll do a mix for a band then i'll do a production and then i'll do you know another mix and then i'll do another couple productions that sort of thing i go back and forth yeah it sounds like you got an amazing start i mean to learn from the lanois like that's that's amazing it was really fascinating because uh interestingly enough the the studio at the time was was really a learning to explore what a studio could do and the albums that were coming out of the out of the control room when i was making tea and cleaning the toilets were brian Eno's ambient series and the <laughs> apollo soundtrack album and things like that so it sort of really molded me in a way that well i didn't need to you know it wasn't about pop music making or sort of that sort of standard thing it was studio as exploration and and so that that sort of was the grounding that was the foundation of what i had so it was never really uh, a, a standard beginning Exactly, from from what I learned how to do. That's amazing. And how did that come about that you got that opportunity to work with them? 
Well, funnily enough, uh, my girlfriend at the time, her uh, her aunt was uh, di- just recently divorced from Bob Lanois. Oh. And so she said, you know, my uncle, my, my ex-uncle owns a studio. Why don't you go check it out? <laughs> that's, that's a good connection to have there, right? <laughs> it was just very, very fortunate. That's amazing. So now you've obviously gone on and you, you've done a lot of big projects. Do you have your own home-based studio these days? Or are you kind of all around the world at different studios? I travel for production mostly, but uh, and I do some in Canada as well. But for mixing, I mix in my studio at my, at my apartment. Awesome. It's a small setup. I don't generally have clients around, but uh, it's all set up and treated in, my, in the one room that I have. And that's my studio. And I just get projects in via the internet or via, you know, somebody brings me over a hard drive and I'll mix it and send it off. It's, it's a very pleasant way to work. Do you prefer to work out of home rather than in other studios? From a mixed standpoint, yes, I do. Okay. Just because I know it so well now. That's amazing. In terms of the production side of things, how involved do you like to get with producing an album? Do you get involved in a lot of the songwriting side of things or do you kind of leave it more up to the artist and you're focused on just the, getting the best takes or what's your approach there? I my approach is really what's desired by the project. Um, if needed, I'll get involved in the pre-production. Um, I, I generally get involved in pre-production regardless, just to at least arrange the songs. But I'll help with the songwriting. I'll help with uh, you know the sort of approaches to parts, anything from tempo, key, uh, all that stuff, and and then finally arrangement of the song, structure of the song, uh, and overall approach. Um, then when we get in the studio, then I become a, a, a you know performance editor and and assessment and also see what happy accidents can happen and that sort of thing. So it's it's really top to bottom. It depends on really what's needed by the project. Got it. So that in your opinion, what makes a good song? Like what are you trying to get out of the band as you're recording them or working with them in the pre-production stage and all that kind of stuff? Um, for me, it, it, a good song. I think is it's effortlessness. A song should kind of come at you and, and not, it shouldn't be something that uh, you're, you're having to think about too much. And it's funny because I often do uh, music that is somewhat cerebral, but I think the, the key is to actually trick the people into, uh, into not really thinking about it, but feeling it more, even if it is a cerebral sort of approach to a song. So I think something that a song that invites you in and and sort of washes over you without you having to intellectualize it too much. I think that that makes a great song for me. Yeah, I totally agree with that for sure. You, you definitely have to feel out the song and get into yeah, it. I mean, strong, strong melody, strong, you know, solid sound, solid, solid approach to anything uh, for me is is key. You, know, you have to have a strong foundation. If it's a groove based song, the groove has to be effortless and has to be, um, you know, depending on what's needed from the song, either powerful or subtle or groovy, but whatever it is, it's got to, it's got to come at you without, without an attack and without a, um, uh, songs can be challenging, but the challenge should be something that you want to, uh, approach as opposed to, um, something that's, that's sort of in your face. And, Unless you're a punk band and you really want to kind of push <laughs> buttons and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, the great songs are coming in all different shapes, sizes, and colors. So, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it's, it's, it's if you can listen to it and just feel good about having listened to a song and not feel like you've wasted your time, that's a good song. Got it. So what's a common mistake then that you see a lot of people making before they enter the studio? 
I think a common mistake amongst bands often is, uh, well, depending on the era, different different things happen. Sometimes uh, artists will overthink a song, and uh, you know, some, sometimes a great melody will come just naturally with the song and it'll be effortless and be great. And the and the band will then go, oh yeah, but it's a little too poppy, so I don't want to do that. And then they'll just shoot themselves in the foot, write something that's a little bit more challenging, and then less people will hear the song. And the band will be maybe a little bit more, you know, satisfied that they that they didn't quote unquote sell out to something. But uh, you know, then you know they'll go back to working at McDonald's. <laughs> you know? uh, I think I think also what's uh, a common mistake amongst young bands is not focusing on their musicianship. Um, they lean too heavily on the technology of the day. Uh, if they're if they're a band that requires playing then they should really work hard on their playing. They shouldn't rely on the technology to improve their substandard musicianship. Got it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that for sure. So one album that I think of whenever I think of you is Silverchair's Diorama. To me, that that album was, it was the band that had, that was famous for a certain sound and they were trying to expand that and, you know, become, go from the grunge thing to having a lot more orchestral background and being a lot more, uh, artsy in, in a way to me how do you go about approaching an album like that how do you keep the focus of the band and keep like the history of the band's success in there while expanding it well i think you have to um you have to approach a record like that with exploration in mind like they're looking for something new and daniel is such a, a, a an amazing writer an amazing musician that you you have to kind of run with him down the street and, and, and try and find where to go. There's signposts that that I'm used to and that I know and that everybody knows uh, from their history. And you can you can acknowledge those. But he was really trying to do something different. And from the first meeting that I ever had with him, he was saying, you know, I want to do this thing and I don't want to just write you know, things that are, that are, that I've already written in the past. I want to explore something new. And that's why I got Van Dyke Parks involved. That's why we went down that street and, and he wrote these things. I mean, he got himself a piano. He'd never played piano before. And he wrote that song tune in the brine. It's like, that's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing to do, you know, when yeah. you come up with that. And it really works. I know it's, it's, again, it's a little more challenging for his fans, but if you listen to it melodically, it's very inviting. You know, there's nothing in there that 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 is so grating that it that it would push you away, in my opinion. And the arrangement, the orchestral arrangement, is gorgeous to it. You know, that whole album, unfortunately, kind of fell through the cracks. On, uh, you know, the 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 people who were were um, sort of working that album at the time, they didn't they didn't really know what to do with it. You know, because they were expecting something else, even though we had told them throughout the entire process that this is what we were doing. They just figured, oh, well, you know, but at the end, he's just going to write this, you know, write us a couple of pop rock songs and it'll be fine, you know, but he didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And, he, you know, he didn't, you know, they sent us back in. We did record a couple more songs that just weren't that good and gave them to him and they realized they weren't that good. And then they put out the album as was. And it, you know, it's sort of, it, unfortunately, because Daniel got sick, he couldn't tour it. So they kind of gave it soft release, you know, and, and it didn't sort of fell through the cracks. But I think that, that, you know, when you have an artist that really wants to stretch and explore something and, you know, he's had some successes in the past, I think they earned the right to be able to do that. And that, and that should be supported as much as it possibly can. That was my only disappointment is that it just didn't seem to get supported mm -hmm. in any way. 
Like it got put out there, but you know, you have a, you have an album like OK Computer, which is not really a standard record from a, a pop standpoint, but it got supported. It got supported enough to the point when the fans picked up on it, it then took off and it's become like a seminal record for them. Diorama could have been the same thing if it had had that support. Yeah. I would assume that there was a lot of pressure, like you said, from like radio and I'm sure from the label and all that kind of stuff. You know, there, there's people that are riding on the success of their previous albums. How do you balance that between the artist's vision for the album and that label influence there? Well, yeah, you have, you have to provide a liaison between the artist and the label and you have to try and service both. But I think that for me, it's, it's all about the, the you know, clarity of the intention. And if, if, the, if the, the label are coming back and saying, well, you know, this is not what we expected after the fact, and you've been very clear about them, what, what you know, you're planning to do, and there's been no uh, sort of duplicity in trying it, then, then it's up to them to sort of recognize that, yeah, this is what, this is what they were doing. And, and if they didn't want to support it, maybe they shouldn't have just put it out and given it back to them. You know, it's, it's hard to, to try and do that. But I think just like open communication, I'm all for inviting everybody into the studio and hearing it and saying and listening to their feedback. If they've got good feedback and they and they they say, you know, well, the, you know, this song could use a little of this or you, this song could use a little of that. I'm all for exploring that. You know, I'm an inclusive kind of producer, I think. But but when it's down to the foundations and the fundamentals of what the album is, you know, if they don't like it. Then they can just refuse it. Don't put it out, but don't put it out in a soft way, because yeah. it's it's really too bad. I just thought that that you know it should have given that particular record. If we're continually discussing that one, it deserved more of a chance. And, and I'll tell you, I get more feedback from people like yourself and like and others who come up to me and say, you know, this that album that that you know really meant a lot to me. That you know, and they think, well, if if a lot of people had had a chance to hear it. That might there might have been more, mm-hmm. you know. People find people continue to find that album, you know, and listen to it and go, "Wow, this is really something special." I wouldn't have expected that from somebody like Daniel. But then, you know, if you think about it, he wrote Frog Stomp when he was fifteen. <laughs> yeah, that in itself but is. What crazy. artists want to keep writing what they were when they were fifteen? Yeah, it's, it's very true. Even the album that you did after that was an extension of Diorama as well. Sure. And and since then, Daniel Johns has gone on to do a lot lot of unique things. So it yeah. just shows his musicianship in there. Yep. So I guess in terms of um, let's move over to f- talking about mixing now. So what's your mindset with going into a mix? Where do you start? How do you start? Do you have a typical approach? I have an approach. Uh, it depends on the kind of song. But if it's a standard sort of band song, I'll listen to the the roughs that they have. And then, you know, I'll generally start, for me, if it's a groove song, if it's a drum song, I'll start with the foundation of the drums and the bass and the rhythm section and get that going first and make sure that that's solid and, and you know, sort of sonically powerful in there. And then bring in the guitars and bring in the basses or the keyboards or the vocals around that and sort of try and make a mix where it's powerful and strong and not so much in your face, but it's, it's certainly present. But it also invites you in. I hate mixes that just sit on the end of your nose and are sort of barking at you the entire time. For me, it's, uh, you know, I want to be able to lean into the speakers and listen, sort of come, you know, want to have it come and envelop me as opposed to push me back. Yeah. How long does it normally take you to finish a mix then? Between one and two days. It depends. For, for, for a mix mix, if I, if I know the material and I'm in the middle of an album, we have sort of a, a, a setup kind of going, then I generally do a song a day. Um, and then revisions after that. So it's a day, sometimes two, and then and then revisions. 
are you mixing in the box these days or it's all it's all in the box all in the yep. box and it's why why make that change because you used to do a lot of work out of out of studios where there's lots of analog gear and i did you know what i i i found that um mixing in the box allowed me to set up a studio at, at my place the way that clients were these days they they really want lots of revisions so being able to do that quickly is is you know pretty invaluable these days and you know essentially i'm able now to work with projects that you know i might not have been able to take on before because often a band won't have a lot of money but if i like the music i can say you know what i can cut you a deal i can do it at my place and do that and i just got good at mixing at my at my studio and i set up a 5-1 system so i could do the the you know the smashing pumpkins 5-1 thing and the rush 5-1 thing and just uh, just finished a metric thing so it's it's you know, you're able, you know, I'm able to, you know, the way the technology has come uh, to fruition these days with a lot of the plugins. I mean, I use the UAD system a lot, you know, primarily. Uh, I've got all the DSP ones. I've got lots of wave stuff. I've got enough that, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it, it's pretty close to what the original analog gear was at a fraction of the price. And, you know, I think tools, like anything are are only as good as the the user of them you know and i find that you know i'm i'm getting better and better at at these things and uh i'm able to utilize them for what i know i need in a mix so you know uh, it, it's sort of an evolution over the last 10 years uh gradually shifting from from one to the other and it's made it's made my life easier and it's made made me able to you know approach mixes and to work with projects that I might not have uh, really had the opportunity to before. Perfect. How do you know when you're done a mix? Um, I think I'm done a mix when I, when I feel I've got nothing more to contribute to it. You know, once it's like, it's there and I'm grooving, I'm sitting, listening to it and I'm, I feel satisfied by it. Then it's pretty much done. Now then the, you know, the, the band might come or if it's a producer that sent it to me, might say, Oh, we want to try this. We want to try that. That's fine. I'm, I'm open for that. But you know, if I'm effortlessly kind of grooving along with it and it's feeling good, then, then it's kind of done for me. And is that just part of your process? Like you, you, you know, you kind of have like a certain approach to doing all your mixes. Like obviously, like you said, you, you start with whatever the foundation of the song is. But do you, do you have a process where it's like, you know, you get your levels first and then you add your EQs and your compression? And, and like, is there a checklist that you're following kind of mentally? There's a there's an internal checklist, I suppose. But it's really I. I, I'm pretty much I'll listen to everything, everything that's part of the mix and everything that they've sent me or everything that I've I've recorded. And, you know, I'll be building it as I go. And I don't I don't tend to uh, balance things before I get my you know equalization and compression going on and my effects. I will work on each individual sound one by one, bring it in, modify it, you know, take it out where I think, oh, well, that's just too much there, you know, sit the vocal in there, make sure that that's gone. I mean, the vocal really, if it's a, if it's got a vocal in it, that's primarily what the most important thing is. So that's got to sit, you know, uh, uh, not above all else, but it's got to command your attention. If it's a great vocal, you want that to command, command the attention and the band has to support that. It's not to say that all my mixes have the vocal way up front, but there's a clarity that needs to happen. There shouldn't be, a, you know, obfuscation of the vocal. Got it. At what point did you feel like you started to make really good mixes? Uh, I'm still working on that one. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I like some of what I do, but you know, it's a continually evolving and, and improving process. You know, I always want to get better. I always want to try, try different things and try to utilize things, you know, you know, it's like if I see something new that's a plug in there, it's like, oh, let me try that one. What's that going to do? And see, you know, just I, I think it's it'd be boring to just do the same mix over and over again. So I just keep trying to evolve and trying to get 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 better. So that being said, I mean, with your years of experience, how do you continue to push yourself? Like what how, how do you feel you can evolve from from this point? Um, I mean, I think it's it's more sort of when new music gets written and new approaches to music get written. That's that's what's exciting. It's like, well, now here's a song that's written and approached in this way. How would I how would I mix that? You know, how would how do I how do I balance all of this? You know, I'm doing this project with this girl in New York at the moment that's got a lot of EDM stuff going on and and real drums and real band. And so it's like, man, how do I fit that together? And is it is it necessary to fit it all together? Should I just yank stuff out? So, you know, it's just I think it's getting presented with new music and just seeing like how I how I would approach that and trying different things and trying trying to explore, uh, you know, either not so much new plugins, but new uses of plugins. If you want to drive something a little harder or just use it as just use it as a tone control or things like that, just to see what just to see what will happen. I totally agree with you on that one. I think that's very, a very good way to look at it. What's something that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're a little crazy for doing? Do you have any like special chains that you'd like to try on certain things? Uh, the way that I do things often is in uh, sort of groups of subgroups of things, grouping different things together and compressing and equalizing that way. So sometimes it's, you know, some guitars and some keyboards through the same same one and compressing them together and seeing what happens with that. You know, it's, it's just um, I'm not – I don't think I do like nutty, crazy things with mixes. There, there are certain, you know, sort of um, uh, effects that I have that that you know add octaves things or 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 stutter things, stutter edit things that that can be used for for certain fun effects. But I don't want to do things in a mix that are gimmicky and actually take away from the song. I just want to I just want to serve the song. So. That's the most important thing. I don't, you know, doing crazy stuff and, and inspiring the band. Sometimes, sometimes that's great. But if it's, it's only if it's necessary. Only if I find myself bored with a section and be like, you know what, nothing's going on here for a long time. I better do something to make this, you know, interesting. Regenerative delays on something that just kind of turn into into another sound. That sort of thing. It's all, it's all down to serving the song. That's that's really primarily what what the focus of of my mixing is. I think. Definitely. So then when it comes to adding some more creative moves in your mixes, how do you go about approaching those? Do you, is it something you consult with the artist about first or you, you just kind of do it and see what they think? Often I'll just do it and see what they think. And, and I'll, when I send it to them, I'll put it in the email. It's like, you know, and I've tried this thing, you know, saying I'm not married to it. I thought it was pretty cool. If you don't dig it, then, you know, I can certainly take it out. It's not a foundation to the mix. So, you know, I'll try things. Um, and if it's, if I feel strongly about it, then I'll campaign heavily for it. And I'll say, look, this is really interesting. I think this is, I think you'd be, you'd be wrong to take it out, but ultimately it's their project. You know, if it's my production, then I'll, I, I might fight harder for it, but if it's their thing, you know, then I'll take it and they don't like it, then I'll take it out. But, you know, I think it's one of those things. It's like when I hire musicians to work on a project or, if, you know, if I, if I do a production and hire a mixer, I will do that because of what they do. And 
often I'll just let them do what they do and say, okay, that's, you know, like a musician, you know, I'm working with this guy now, Bill Dillon from originally from Toronto, but you know, I met him in Hamilton years ago and he creates these beautiful soundscapes and he's this amazing player, but you can't take somebody like Bill and tell him, well, you know, play this part here. It's just like, he's got to do his thing and you just let him do it. You know, there are other musicians that require more direction and more, 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 um, uh, keeping them in focus. But, you know, with some, you just like, you do this thing, do your thing, man. And, and we'll adapt it to what you know, we'll adapt ourselves to what you're doing. Yeah. When you get mixed sessions sent to you, what problems do you frequently see in terms of how people have sent you these files or that kind of stuff? Disorganization. That's, that's the key is disorganization. You know, the classic is, you know, you get sent a mix and it's audio file one, audio file two, audio file three. That sort of thing. I mean, I've got I've got a great engineer and artist of his own right named Ryan McCambridge, who uh, uh, I've worked with for a number of years now, and he sort of helps to he sets up the mix prep for me, and we'll we'll uh, liaise back and forth about it, and you know talk about what's necessary. But we've worked for a long time on getting our organization straight and our templates straight, and so he can import things. I try to get you know the producer or the artists to organize beforehand as much as possible but you know it's you know when you get a when you get a thing where their files aren't consolidated all to one point you think you know those are the things you know, the mistakes that that just make my life more difficult mm -hmm. often i'll just say you know if i get something that's been sent in that's just not right i'll just say to ryan you know like send it back and say look organize it because because how are we going to know what you're intending if it's all over the place of course so do you mix you mentioned templates do you mix off of templates a lot or do you kind of approach every mix fresh? I have a set of templates that I use, but it's it's not. There aren't there are are plugins that are options that are set, and nothing is um, EQs aren't set, right? But I just have like so a template that's got a lot of Neve stuff going on in it, or a template that's got a lot of SSL stuff going on in it. So things like that that say, okay, well this this song sounds like it needs this kind of a thing, and so it's just it's really just setting up um, possibilities. For me to try so that so that the the um uh the like i'll have a set of effects that are you know delays that are possible reverbs that are possible crazy effects that are possible and the sends are already there i don't have to do it. it's just for speed really so that you know it's like oh what's the sound like with that on and i can just turn it on it's already being sent ready to go it's already coming back so i can already hear it. it's not it's like it's like just having a, a console set up there already rather than rather than uh starting with you know a blank, a blank slate and having to put every plugin you might want on. I have all the ones that I know I like to use on different things. Let's just throw them up there. And there's like four or five options on one. And then I just keep the, the ones that I'm not using inactive. So it's not taking up any DSP. It's just like, Oh, what's it like with that, with the 1081 on it? You know, well, what's it like with the SSL and the compression from the SSL on it? How's that? Just click it on and then play with it. It's like, Oh yeah, that's better. You know, just, it's just really for speed of work. Yeah. That's all. So you can have your Neve console available and your SSL console available and your API console available. It's like, oh, what's it like to do this? Oh, great. It's just it's just quickness and speed of, of workflow. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So one thing that I see a lot of people still talking about on forums and, um, you know, like gear slots or something like that is is gain staging. How do you like to approach gain staging in your mix? Is it something that you worry about or do you have like a like a process that you follow with that? You mean where people just stick like uh, a gain on it and gain everything down to a certain level? Yeah, like I see that happen a lot. People suggest, oh, drop everything down 20 dB 
You know, is is that something that you even bother with? I mean, it, it depends on what level it was recorded at. Fair enough. You know, and all these things are relative, right? If something's coming at me and everything's super hot, sure. But then you know what? There's there's clip game, right? <laughs> on that. So I mean, you know what? I, I'm afraid every project is is different, and so you have to approach it. You know, if everything's really hot, yeah, I'll gain it all down, so it's not hitting everything too hard. If it's not, then I won't. But it's not it's not an automatic thing where I just automatically turn everything way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know I've heard some people talk about hitting certain compressors at certain levels and that kind of stuff. So I wasn't sure if, if that right. was something you automate into your system or. I, I will, but then I use I do that through my subgroups. So okay. if I've got like for example, you know, a stereo guitar thing going on where it's two guitars doubled, often that'll just go through the same stereo subgroup through the same compressor, and I'll hit that subgroup. I'll turn the the the, the what we call the shell tracks, which is just the audio tracks, bring them down going into the subgroup. And then I've got the ultimate subgroup level on the butt. So I've got level going into the compression and coming out. Makes sense. So then when it comes to getting things like the low end right, what are some of your tips with that? Yeah, that's really hard, isn't it? <laughs> um, you, you've really got to carve the bottom end amongst what you're using, you know, whether something's depending on what you know, if there is there a sub bass on there, is there a bass guitar on there? Carve out the space that you need to use. You know, utilize in the bass guitar if there's an amp and a DI. You know, or a little distortion. I'll use all three and I'll balance those along with the bass drum or any subs or anything that's going on. It's just a matter of taking each one and carving, carving each one and, and losing what you don't need. You think you might need all that on the on the on the bass drum or all that really sub bass, but actually that's getting in the way of the bass guitar. So carve that out, and if it's if it's a tight performance, you'll get the bottom end. Mm-hmm. Those things, it's you know, it's finding it's finding ways to poke things through and have the bottom end be strong without it washing over everything else. That's always the key. For sure, you know, sometimes pulling out around you know two forty to three, somewhere in there, getting a lot of those areas clearer. <clears throat> Clarity in the bottom end, it's a really hard one, and it's all down to you know how it's recorded. And do you mix with a sub? I have a sub that I mix with. Yeah. It's not it's not super loud. It's just there letting me know what's going on. Got it. And and have you always mixed that way? Or is that something you've incorporated more recently? Uh, well, not always, but for the last sort of 10 years, yeah, I've had a sub in there. And and how do you feel that that's helped your mixes? Just clarity in the bottom end, yeah. you know. Because often if you haven't got one, you really don't know what's going on. And, you know, if you can put it up on the large speakers, but then that's the only thing you can tell on large speakers, I find, mm-hmm. is just what's going on in the bottom. Yep. So, and in my system at home, I don't have large speakers. So, you know, I've got my two sets. I've got my KRKs that I've used for years, and I've got the Yamahas that I've used for a number of years, too, with the sub. And that those two things really tell me as much as I need to know. Mm-hmm. Well, it just goes to show, if you, if you have speakers that you've used forever – you just learn how those speakers sound and especially exactly. if you're mixing it out of your house and you're always in the same environment, you know how things should sound, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's always good to reference though, you know, other things that you've heard that you like. It's like, oh yeah, you know, have a reference to that. Okay, now I know where I want to go. Mm-hmm. So I saw you on an episode of Pensado's Place a while ago and he had you in the batter's box segment and he was asking about reverb and your answer to that was be careful. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Is reverb something that you see a lot of people making mistakes with, or is it something that you avoid? What did you mean by that? I don't avoid it, but I find that that it's um, reverb is is very inviting and can cover up all manner of sins. And 
I I like reverbs. I like I like to use them for for spatial awareness, but um, and for and for crazy like okay, we want this in the tank now. We want this way back in the tank, and that's okay too. But to use it to cover up something that that is either poorly recorded or poorly performed, I think eventually people will hear through that. And so be careful. Be careful with your use of it as to how, uh, you know, use it to augment and to accentuate something great, not to cover something bad. Great answer. I like that. We all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio. Do you have any examples of anything that's gone wrong in a session that you've learned a lesson from? Hmm. Um, mostly what goes wrong in the studio, I find, is, uh, well, okay. On the one hand, uh, know who you're know who you're hiring as a musician. I think because too many times I've I've had a suggestion, brought somebody in. I did one session. I won't I won't tell you what it was, but you know I hired a keyboard player uh, who was really great at getting sounds out of keyboards, but couldn't play keyboards. He was a sound guy. He was a sort of sonic EDM guy, but not a player. And I was sort of led to believe he was a player. And, you know, so that, that was my own fault. I didn't do enough research on that person and talk to them enough to see if they were right for the session. But um, I think uh, one of the things that's a classic for me is is working on something too long and late into the night and making poor decisions out of fatigue. Um, it's often better when you're when you're battling against something, you know, you're not sure it's not working fight through, try and fight through. It's often better to just go, you know what? This is not clear in my mind. I need to sleep on this. And then the solution invariably presents itself in the morning. So beating a dead horse, you know, all night long, I find you don't tend to come up with something great most of the time. Occasionally something inspired will happen. But most of the times I've got there the next morning after doing that and thought, oh, what a load of crap that is, (laughs) you know. I mean, if you're enjoying and you're creating and you're, and you're making great things, that, you know, and you're a night worker, that's fine. It's not the same thing. It's when you're, it's when you need, feel the need to get something done and it's not working and you're trying to battle through and, you know, you, you end up making bad decisions. Mm-hmm. So how do you cut yourself off? Is there anything that kind of just comes to mind that you're like, you know what, I, I realize I'm, I'm making some bad calls right now? Yeah. Uh, I mean, once it gets late, I, it's usually I'm, I know that, you know, this is, you know, I'm, my attitude goes, I feel bad about the song. I feel bad about everything. It's like, yeah, this is, uh, uh, this is the wrong time to be here. We'll come back in the morning. Hmm. It's pretty clear. Yeah. You know, when something's, when something's working and you're tired and it's not happening, it's like, yeah, the creativity has gone out of the room and it's just become functional and fighting. You know that, that at that point it's like, yeah, we're done. Yeah. Fair enough. What's a good lesson that you've learned from working with another producer or mixing engineer? Uh, well, working with working with people like Dan and Brian Eno and and things like that, I think um, you know a great lesson was how to how, how to uh, not coddle the artist, but to make the artist feel like they're they're going to do their best performance. That's that's really key. Um, uh, it, and it's more, it's less like studio skills and more people skills, you know, how to communicate with somebody, how to work with somebody, how to present a situation and set a situation where they feel, you know, comfortable, you know, not, not, not completely in their comfort zone, but comfortable enough that they know that they're going to be, uh, 
doing their best their best work you know for span stone sour we built uh cory the singer and we built him a, a little uh yurt in the studio for his sort of room to sing in it's like we brought it basically brought in a little mini tent you know and he would say you know because the room was quite a big room we had to do something but rather than just set up gobos we actually we actually built him his own little environment you know? <laughs> and he put stuff up on the walls and stuff it was great you know rather than you know rather than just a, a sort of sterile studio booth you know he built himself built himself a space and so so learning things like that from 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 producers dan and working with artists like peter gabriel same sort of thing it's like you want to you want to you want to make people comfortable you want to make them feel like they're they're going to do their best work mm-hmm. that definitely has an influence on the quality of the recording and everything right Sure. And, you you know, you, you kind of want somebody on edge a little bit sometimes if it's an edgy song. So you want to you want to poke the bear a little bit, but not so much that you're, you're throwing them completely off and losing their confidence. Mm-hmm. Do you have any special tips or tools that you use that have helped you with either the quality of your mixes or with this with your speed of workflow and all that kind of stuff? Um, well, speed of workflow for me and quality of mixes really is preparation and learning learning the tools that, you know, well and learning the tools that you know get great results you know and it's not it's it's a lot easier these days you know it used to be like well you had to buy all kinds of gear or or work at a studio where there was all kinds of gear that can still be great but really preparation is the key and and really with production if the song and the arrangement is good the mix is generally easy you know it's when it's when the arrangement and the song and the 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 instruments aren't blending together as a thing you know part wise or or anything it, that that's when it becomes much more difficult mm-hmm. do you master your own mixes no nope. no i've got a number of mixes and mastering engineers that that are all very good that that for me you know i like that last set of ears on it yeah. I, I don't I don't think I'd be very good at mastering my own things. I have done a couple little masters for people. It's not really my skill set, but, you know, I can do it. Um, I've helped, you know, it's usually for younger artists that don't have, you know, can't afford to get somebody like Bob Ludwig or, you know, Greg Calby or Andy mm-hmm. Bendad or those great guys, you know, Joel Carvalho here in Toronto, you know, all those great guys that do this, you know, they, they they charge what they're worth, you know. Young indie artists might not have that, so it's like I'll, I'll throw a quick mastering down for somebody who's doing like a little YouTube release or something. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that are listening to this are maybe in the earlier stages of their career. What advice would you give to someone who's just getting started out? Um, I would say this: uh, find what it is that you that really turns your crank musically, and approach those people that that you're working that you're looking to work with and say look you know i'm a i'm a young mixer i want to try you know I, i'm not the greatest at it but let me try something give give me give, give me some music that i can do for free for you and you know I'll, I'll see what i'll see what that works or you know if you're doing a live sound thing it's like you know i love your band i'll come out and help you set up do live sound it's really kind of putting yourself out there and and offering yourself up you know, a lot of guys go to school and, and, you know, there are great schools out there. Metalworks, Great School, Harris, you know, all those places are really good. But come out of that, it's like, okay, I've got a few set of skills now. Let me offer them out to people and build relationships with people. That's really the key is building relationships with bands and people, um, you know, because if you do something for them and you help them out, you know, oftentimes they'll, they'll be a little bit of loyalty there and they'll throw you something, you know, when they can. That sort of thing. Put your, putting yourself out there as much as you can. Find the find the music that you really love, 
and and work like that. You know, spend spend money on tools that you that you like and you think you can be creative with and and know and learn well. You know, trying to trying to load up with every plugin imaginable really doesn't help because that just that just gives you a bunch of options that you'll be only sort of okay using. Find a few things that you really know well and you really learn well and what their what their 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 um, advantages are and what their uh, um, I can't find the right word. What finding the things that they're good at, utilize them for that, and then build on your on your both the things you own and the skills that you have. So it's a process, you know. I I've been doing this for a long, long time, and you know I shudder to hear some of my early mixes, you know. <laughs> but it's okay, you know. Don't don't think that every mix you're going to do right away is going to be the best thing ever, you know. But but constantly try and improve, constantly try and learn, listen, listen to music. And what about with getting new clients? What would you recommend for someone who's in the earlier stages for for that? Um, it's really hard. The music industry is tough. You know, finding new clients, putting yourself out there. To, you know, social media is a great you know thing for that. But it's really just you know if you're if you're a young mixer or a young producer who's trying things, you have to approach people. You have to get out there and you have to approach people and say, you know what, I saw you last night at the Horseshoe. I saw you last night at wherever. You know. I think you're really great. I'd love to try doing something with you. Here's what I've done, you know, trying to build up a portfolio of some kind. Here's what I've done or here's, you know, what my what my qualifications are from school or what, you know, what I've done or what I've got, what gear I've got, you know, can we try and record something? Can I try and mix something for you? It's just building relationships, building building up, you know. And I've always found that for me um I've had the best success in in talking with bands as opposed to talking with companies, you know, some people are good at doing the talking with companies and build relationships that way. I'm just not as good at, at that. You know, my, my most successful or most enjoyable projects come from when the band and I have a mutual respect and we, we meet each other and like, they like what I do. I like what they do, you know, and then we deal with the business side on the other side, you know, it's sort of, I find that that's how I've, I've done it. Other, other people do different ways. You know, it's individual, find out, find out who you communicate best with. and approach those people. Got it. You'd mentioned earlier, just kind of mastering a few select tools. What's one piece of gear that you couldn't live without? Um, probably my UAD setup is the, you know, is, is what I can't, couldn't, you know, that, that really changed my world, uh, in the quality of what they had. I really couldn't do, uh, the mixing at home without the system that I have. That's sort of invaluable. That, that and my old M7 microphone for vocals that I use for recording. That's awesome. And who are your top three mixers or producers? Uh, that's really hard. Um, <laughs> top three. Uh, <laughs> or just people that you look up to in general. I think Flood is really great. Flood's always been really great. Um, you know, uh, somebody like Chris Lord Algae has got a thing that he does better than anybody else in the world. You know, he's got a real skill. He's got a real talent for, for making things really pop on radio and being, you know, like it's, it's just, you know, he's, he's got a thing. Um, you know, Clear Mountain was always great. Uh, you know, all these people, I, I, I kind of don't listen to things and judge them by who, who mix them. I, I just, listen, I like whether the band has done it or whether, you know, I kind of, I'm the worst sort of networker or worst person that goes in and reading credits and stuff. I do, but it's like I don't think about it in those terms. You know, there's all kinds of all kinds of people out there that are that have such skill and such, you know, quality of of what they do that 
you know, I, I, I want to listen to all of them and I want to listen to be, you know, I want to try and get as good as all of them. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of, you know, <laughs> it's, it's really hard because it's, you know, I, I, I never think of that of like, oh, who do I, you know, who do I really respect as a producer? Who do I really respect? To, I mean, but, you know, um, you know, I can throw a bunch of names at you, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything. That just be me spouting names, you know, of people, I, you know, all kinds of people that do great work. So then that being said, would you be able to identify your top three albums that have had the biggest influence on your musical journey? I mean, early on in life, you know, Zeppelin Four was something pretty, pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, Rumors and The Wall were, were albums that that were great. And then, you know, um, Andy Wallace's production of, of Grace, that that album was a great album. But, you know, then also that that uh, Portishead record, the dummy, right? you know, that was like revolutionary things like that. You know, the early Van Halen stuff. Again, it's like, you know, I kind of take it all in. You know, I never had one style or one thing that, that I that I thought, oh, well, I want to I want to make music like that. It's like I just wanted to make music like everything. I grew up in an era where you could be a fan of of Led Zeppelin and ABBA at the same time. It didn't matter. You know, there weren't there weren't rules that said you could only like this one thing or, you know, if you like Black Sabbath, you couldn't like ACDC. Well, of course you could, you know. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I know that uh, you're pretty busy today, and I know that I caught you in the middle of a mix, so we should start to wrap up. How can people start to follow you online? Um, I mean, I have uh, a Facebook page, both professional and a personal one. You know, people can look at that. Um, I have an Instagram, but I don't do much with it, and I don't really tweet that much either. I, I get, I keep getting told that I should more often, um, but uh, so I might. But it's, you know, I don't engage as much with social media. Um, I have a website, which needs updating. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm working so much that I just don't have time to do this stuff. And I don't, I don't focus on this. But yeah, that's a good problem to have, right? It is a good problem to have. You know, if I was constantly updating things on my Facebook page, I'd be wondering, like, why, why aren't I working? <laughs> why am I spending so much time on Facebook? But, you know, it's there. You know, and I do, I do try to put some stuff down. And I, I should start doing a little bit more of that just to let the world know what I'm doing. But I am somewhat of a private person as well. Oh, we respect that as well. Any cool projects that you're working on right now that you're excited that you can talk about? Well, I'm working on, I'm working on three. It's girl Danielle Schwab from New York. That's the one that's got a lot of the EDM stuff. She's very, very talented. Um, indie artist, first-time project. Um, I'm working with uh, Jason Snyderman. Uh, who's a solo artist on uh, Six Shooter Records. He's the son of Sam the Record Man, Sam Snyder, and he's a keyboard player and an artist, and it's a lot of fun. We're doing very old, like old and modern, retro and, and modern music uh, with him. And I'm currently in a, a quite a long production with a band called Leahy, which is a family band from, from uh, uh, Lakefield originally. And we're doing a very, quite, very interesting, involved both Irish and rock and pop and, you know, program stuff. It's a very, it's a very involved and, and deep record. It should be, it should make a big splash. It should be very interesting. Very cool. I'll have to check those out for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I think you gave us a lot of really great insight on things and some really great advice. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. So that was my chat with David Bottrell. I'm so happy I got to talk to him. That guy has made some amazing records. If you're not familiar with his work, make sure to go check it out because your mind will be blown. He does some awesome projects. So that about wraps up this episode. 
And if this is your first time hearing about MasterYourMix.com, make sure to go check out the website. At the top of the page, there's a link to download your free copy of The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. That's a guide that I put together to help you with understanding EQ and compression, and I show you some settings to try out in order to help you get better mixes much faster. And in it, I discuss the different characteristics of sound that you're going to hear for each instrument and which frequencies you need to be boosting and cutting to clean up your sound and get it sounding nicely polished. And if you follow everything that's in there, it'll help point you in the right direction and get you off to a really great start with your mixes. So once again, go check out MasterYourMix.com and it's at the top of the page. It's a free download, so get your copy now. So that's it, guys. That's everything for this episode. Thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. 